read from Matthew chapter 5, again, verses 17 through 20. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Father, the, the hymn writer describes that great day when we shall be with you, that from sin and death set free, glad alleluias shall rise to thee. I pray that we would not wait until that day, knowing that we are set free in Christ, set free from the curse of sin and death, free to follow him, to worship him, to glorify our Lord. And we ask that we would do that even this evening as we read your scriptures and meditate on these things. I pray that you would guard us and guide us, keep us from error, help us to understand these things and to dig further on our own to, to search out the scriptures, knowing Christ's great respect for the word because he is the word of God. We ask that you would build up your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we have been examining this summer the, the challenge of the law, the law of the Old Testament, I have come to the conclusion that it will continue to be a challenge as I continue to study and to look into these things myself. And this evening I want to, I wanted to at least, uh, try to bring a conclusion to the series and look at the law and the believer. And as far as I got was some basic principles, I think, that I have gleaned from the writings of the Scripture, Jesus' words here in Matthew 5, and knowing a little bit about what comes beyond verse 20 in chapter 5, where Jesus has talked about fulfilling the law, and yet he says, For I say to you, where he has authoritatively spoken in these next few chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on the law himself. So we will look at a few of these things, but a, just a reminder of a couple of things that we have looked at so far. And I believe those would be that the substitutionary atonement of Christ emphasizes that Christ has carried out the law fully. I believe that this is one of the definitions that we looked at in when Christ says, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. Our sins, our transgressions, our rebellion, God punished in Christ's body on the cross. And the cross is a fulfilling of the law. But Christ also fulfilled all those types of the temple of the 
sacrifices, of the burnt offerings, because he fully submitted himself to the commands and demands of the law. And what does that affect? Well, the redeemed and forgiven sinners are now called children of God who can and desire to delight in that very law. Even in this chapter of Matthew, we see the Beatitudes. Those, and and why? Because Christ has redeemed us and forgiven us, we can be named among those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, where there wouldn't have been hunger and thirst before. We can be peacemakers. We can be those called the pure in heart because there is a purity because of Christ. We can be called imitators of Christ, those who desire to be like him in every respect. So as we look at the law and the believer, as I said, I think there are a few principles expressed by my outline in terms of questions that I would like to look at, but I would like to also remind us of this, that we would have an understanding and a trust that Jesus is the ultimate authority on the law. It's as if he said, if I could paraphrase Jesus in these next few chapters of Matthew, I am responsible for the giving of the law to Moses. I am the lawgiver. All authority, he says later in Matthew, that kind of puts a, a bookend to these thoughts. All authority, he says, has been given to me in heaven and earth. And I alone am truly able to interpret the law of Moses to you. There is a lot written and a lot said about the law of Moses. Those who believe that the Christians are under obligation to fulfill the law themselves in terms of their own life, to to obey the law as given in the Old Testament per se, exactly. And there are those who say, no, we don't even need to look at the law anymore. We are under grace, not under law. And so there is a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. And I believe, again, Matthew 5, 21 and following is Jesus helping his disciples understand that the scribes and the Pharisees have misunderstood and misapplied the law and led others to do so as well. So, again, there is a lot. And in our half hour together, I'm not going to cover, be able to cover all of these things. But I would like to ask a few questions and offer a few principles. The first of these questions is, is the believer free from the law? The law is a covenant of works. And I believe that therefore is no longer under that. We are no longer under the covenant of works. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2. 
The law was added, Paul says elsewhere, because of transgressions. It was never meant to save people from their sin. But the believer is not released from the law as a rule of life. Surprisingly, for many Christians, they have never heard that there is gospel in the law, that there is grace and truth and righteousness, and it is holy, as Paul says, and good. Why? Because it is a pattern. We learned that some weeks ago. When Moses was given the duty, the job, to build the tabernacle, he was instructed that he would do it according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mount. The pattern. There, there, there was something behind this. It wasn't made up. It wasn't to his discretion. It was something that was a pattern of that which was the reality. There is grace. There is righteousness in the law. In the temple furnishings, we saw a few things. The burnt offerings, the ceremonies, they all display and reveal to us God, reveal his character, reveal his nature. But the law was a tutor, Paul says. A tutor, a pedagogue is the word, used to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith in him. In Romans 6, Paul asks this, this question, Again, I think as an argument against those who would say, you know, let grace abound. He says, shall we, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. We continue in that grace. We continue by faith, not in sin. Law and grace are not opposites. Grace is to help us keep the law. The instruction of both the Old and the New Testament is the same. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holy means to be righteous, being right before God. But being right means being delivered, first of all, from the curse of the law, but being delivered also means being able to keep the law and delight in the law. To be that one, as the psalmist describes, oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Those are not opposite things. One who delights and loves the law of God is one who is also under grace. But grace brings one to love God. Without God's grace, we would not love him. We love him because he first loved us. But to love God is also to love his revelation, to love his law. To love the law is, have a de is to have a desire to keep it. And to keep the law requires his power to fulfill it. All of these things are not opposites. They are not in opposition to one another. Grace is to help us keep the law. And I believe that in Matthew 5 we see that, that Jesus desires that we would understand the law, that we would have an advancement 
on the keeping of the law. But if holiness is keeping the law, what does it mean for Christians today? In other words, I think we could ask the question, what is our conception of being a Christian? What is our conception of true righteousness, true holiness? Well, in this passage, verse 20, we see that, first of all, it must be exceeding that righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And I don't know much about the scribes and Pharisees, but the little reading I have done, this would have been a very, very surprising statement that Jesus made. It would have taken the breath away from many of them, I think. Because what was the job, the employment of the scribes and the Pharisees was to know and do the law. They studied it, they applied it, they wrote about it, they wrote it out carefully on the parchment, apparently. It was their entire reason for being, was to keep the law. And to have Jesus say they must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees must have been, you know, who is this one? And, and added maybe to their confusion about who Jesus Christ was. He was not himself a scribe or a Pharisee. He was not one who had Ph.D. or D-men after his name. He, he was not one of those who was of the, the schools. He had not been educated in these things by their traditional methods. And yet he was denouncing them as he moves on, denouncing them as hypocrites. And what is a hypocrite but one who represents himself as something that he is not? Saying that he believes something that he does not, or does something that he does not. And Jesus says, you brood of vipers, you, you, you hypocrites. What was there, what was seen by Christ? What does he bring out in the Gospels? Their external and formal religion was their way of operating, not worship from the heart. And it, it seems as if the conclusion is that they misrepresented both God and what true religious worship was. If you present yourself as something that you are not, that means that you have re represented what you say that you are or that you do. And in this case, again, I think it's right to say that they misrepresented God and true worship. Came across a quote in a book on the Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he just describes it to a man. But here is the quote. Religion is that which a man does with his own solitude. Essentially, it, it means that you do what you really believe. Everything else is just talk. And the Pharisees and the scribes did what they really believed. They added to the law. They made it minute in all ways, and they changed it to make it conform to their own belief. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
But I believe that Jesus also goes on and gives us some other principles that our righteousness must not major on the ceremonial at the expense of the moral. The outward appearance impresses people quite often, does it not? We can think of celebrities, so-called, in our society, where you see the outside, but we have no idea what they are inside and what they are like. And the outside quite often stands for substance inside, which is not there. But our righteousness must also not consist of regulations and rules made by man. Man-made rules have disregard for the spirit of the law. It seems like they are an evasion, really, of that spirit. And the scribes and Pharisees made a living doing that, did they not? One of the examples that I came across quite often was from Mark chapter 7, where Jesus says of them, if any man says to his father and mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is, given to God. See, what they did was they, they knew the commandment, the law, honor your father and their mother, but they didn't want to do that in a material way, and so they had a, well, their own law. They created this rule that says if, if you say this word, if you say have this idea that it's given to God, I can't really give it to you, it's set aside for him, that somehow that was keeping the law. But I think Jesus rightly points out how they not only did not keep the law, they invalidated the word of God by that tradition. Our righteousness must not be concerned with its own righteousness. It must not be concerned with itself. A self-satisfaction is found in the Pharisees, is it not? And they were condemned by Jesus in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who went to pray. The self-satisfied one says, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. It was a self-righteousness, a self-satisfied attitude. I'm doing the right thing, and these people are not. So what is the true test? I think Jesus quite clearly brings that out in the Sermon on the Mount. The test is the attitude of the heart. What is my relationship to God really like? Do I truly love him? Do I truly worship him in spirit and truth? Is it my desire to walk with him and to know him? What is my relationship to other people like? What is my attitude towards them? How do I treat them? How do I think of them? And I think, again, in looking at the scribes and the Pharisees, am I more interested in doing than being? Am I more interested in that which is external, that which shows, that which presents me than what I am, my being? Am I self-satisfied that I haven't committed the biggie sins? Am I satisfied that I am righteous because I have not murdered, I have not stolen, I have not committed adultery? 
or have I exchanged action for motive? And I believe in Jesus' authority over the law. He would have us examine our motives, our heart, our intentions. So does the law contradict the gospel? Or are they in opposition to one another? Well, I came and found three examples where both the law and the gospel absolutely agree, even down to exact wording in some cases. In both the law and the gospel, redemption precedes demands for obedience. Redemption and deliverance comes before a call for obedience. In Exodus 20, where we're about to receive the Ten Commandments, and the people of Israel were anyway, and as we read, we receive them too. And verse 1 of Exodus 20, God spoke these words to Moses saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then you shall have no other gods before me. Deliverance precedes the demand for obedience. Where do we see that? In the New Testament. I believe we saw it in Acts chapter 3 this morning in the passage that Chuck preached to us on. We read these words, But these things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Then the next sentence. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There is deliverance in the suffering of Christ first. It precedes demands for obedience and repentance. Because what? It is not a man, it's of God. Secondly, in both the law and the gospel, obedience marks believers off as a treasured possession. In Leviticus 19, we read these words, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, says the Lord. And in Colossians chapter 3, we read these words, And so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Do you see? God has chosen his people. God has set apart his treasured possession. Therefore, walk in righteousness. Walk in holiness. Be ye holy as your Lord your God is holy. See, it's always this way. The law is not in opposition to the gospel. The gospel is not in opposition to the law. Thirdly, in both the law and the gospel, obedience goes beyond the concept of social boundaries and purification rites. Again, in Leviticus 19, we read, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the gospel are not in opposition 
But then I think it logically brings us to this question, what is the advantage then of the gospel? Well, we could spend the next eight weeks answering that question. But I believe there are two things I would like to speak of this evening as we finish. The law is authoritative only by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I believe, again, that there is a difference that Jesus brings in the New Covenant. It's here in the Sermon on the Mount, I believe. I think it's Vern Porthris who uses the word an advancement of the law. How Jesus, again, is that authority, and he alone can interpret it to us in the way God intends. But we read these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking about his ministry. He's talking about the ministry, I think specifically um, in relation to the Gentiles, but talking in terms of, of the law and looking at, at the law and their relationship to it. And he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. There is a transforming power given by the Holy Spirit in our relationship to the law in which we cannot even hope to keep the law in anything except we have this. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And secondly, I believe that the believer is in the gospel, both set free from the law and fulfills the law. The great passage, Romans chapter 8, where we read that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul writes for us this to understand. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. I believe this is the new covenant that is inaugurated in Christ. The law does not contradict the gospel. There is grace in the law. But without the gospel, we would have no hope of fulfilling the law. We would have no interest in the law. And what does, again, that mean? that we would have no love for the revelation that God has given us of himself and no desire to please him, no desire to honor him as we walk in our life. But here we see that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because of what Christ has done. Or as Paul says it so well, for what the law could not do 
weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Let us pray. Our Father, these are deep and wonderful things. I pray that you would give us strength, energy, desire, wisdom, and patience as we each work through the scriptures, as we sit at Christ's feet to learn of him, the one who is all authority, all wisdom, and our Savior, and our Lord. Father, we cling to him. We ask that you would teach us, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit understand these things. But again, Father, not to us, not to us, will there be glory, but to you. May the honor, the glory, the power, dominion be yours. And may you build up your church, that she may be light and salt in this world, and exalt Christ. We ask in his name, amen. Do you please rise for the benediction? Somewhat lengthy, but I believe that it brings us to a fitting conclusion from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul continues his words to his disciples. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Amen.